All right, folks, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. The big showdown, Achilles, mad as hell, tearing his way through the Trojans, making his way to Hector, and finally facing off with him. But we got a lot to talk, but got a lot to talk about before we get to that particular showdown. Um, this is Troy in the Trojan War. Welcome back. We're glad to have you. Um, I want to start today by kind of pointing out something that may or may not be all that obvious to the casual reader of the Iliad. Um, we need to stress the structure here at the end, much as we stress the structure at the beginning of this huge epic. Um, just as I was talking way back at the beginning of this discussion around like the first couple of lectures about how Hector Homer is kind of making some strange choices about inclusions in order to sort of set up the war and, and sort of like rehash some of the initial scenes by, you know, including them in this ninth year period. You know, just as it's kind of strange that we have the showdown between Menelaus and Paris it's kind of echoing the original cause of the war in the first place, um, just as we have, like, you know, Helen sort of pointing out all of the major generals, even though Priam should theoretically know them at this point, presumably to introduce the, you know, listener to the characters that are going to be important in this epic, um, just as the beginning is kind of weirdly structured in order to introduce us to stuff that has supposedly been going on for a long time, so does the end here smack a lot of stuff that doesn't belong here. Um, many scholars have taken apart Homer's poem and sort of examined it through a wide variety of critical lenses. We're going to talk about some of the, the other in, uh, epic poet, poetic traditions that Homer is either drawing from or contributing to or sort of kicking off in his own right um, later on in the class once we get to, you know, Homer and the greater, like, archaeological, historical, cultural world uh, that he occupies. So, you know, after we read the Odyssey. Um, but I want to sort of dwell on this now because we do know the story beyond the Iliad. Um, since we've read Apollodorus at this point, we know that the Trojan War cycle, or the Trojan epic cycle, or the series of stories that surround the story of the Trojan War as we have it here in the Iliad, um, definitely incorporates a lot of stuff that we don't see in the Iliad. Like, the Iliad ends before Troy falls, but we all know that Troy is going to fall. Um, the Iliad ends before Aeneas escapes and, you know, goes to found... Rome or whatever it is that he does, but we know that that's what's going to happen to him. We know that the Iliad ends before Odysseus manages to devise the Trojan horse and, you know, gets it through the walls, but we know that that's what's going to happen. Um, and it's very much sort of hinted at here in the text. Um, in fact, some scholars go so far as to say that, like, even the, the whole epic you know, battle between Patroclus and Sarpedon, and even Patroclus himself as a character, may have been an invention of Homer to sort of give us hints and echoes of what's going down between Achilles and various other heroes later on in the story. Um, in fact, some scholars go so far as to say that Hector is an invention of Homer to sort of presage a bigger fight between Achilles and somebody else in some later, you know, Iliadic tradition. Um, I'm not sure how many of those theories are current. We will bump into a couple of them as we start reading into the secondary literature. Um, I certainly have my doubts about a lot of this, 
But I do see, and it's kind of unmistakably there in the text, that Homer is presaging some of the big-time ending events of the Iliad that we don't necessarily see here. Um, and we start off with one of those big, important events that we don't necessarily see kind of closing out the, the story of the Trojan War. Um, here in Book 20, Namely, we get this really dramatic, really important, really significant conflict between Aeneas and Achilles, um, which is weird because, like, it's set up with all of this stuff. Like, Aeneas is goaded by the gods to face off against Achilles, but, you know, as much as Apollo has been, like, protecting Aeneas up until this point, like, now Apollo is sort of goading him into, into facing off against Achilles, even though Aeneas has no way of standing up to Achilles. Like, Achilles is a far superior fighter than Aeneas. Um, and in their exchange of insults, like, Aeneas even gives us the whole history of Troy all the way back to its founder, and how, like, Aeneas himself and, and you know, Priam and Hector fit into the whole story of Troy here. Like, it's a weird sort of inclusion. Take a look at the text here. Um, we get this whole discussion of, like, Achilles is closing ground, and Aeneas, in fact, like, stands up against him. Achilles questions him, what are you doing here out in front, around line 185 or so. Um, but then we get this huge speech from Aeneas, starting around line 208, don't think you can scare me off with words, son of Peleus, as if I were a child. I can trade insults pretty well myself. We know each other's ancestry, each other's parents from hearing the old stories. I've never seen your parents, as you have never seen mine, but men say that Peleus is your father, and Thetis, the saltwater woman, your mother. I boast that I am the son of great Anchises, and that Aphrodite is my mother. One set of these parents will mourn a dear son this day, because we're not going to settle this with childish words and walk off from battle. But if you really do want to hear my story, you're welcome to listen. Many men know it. Cloud-herding Zeus first bore Dardanus, who founded Dardania. Sacred Iliad was not yet a town on the plain. The people then all lived on the slopes of spring-dotted Ida. Dardanus's son was King Erechthonius, who became the richest of mortal men, with three thousand horses in marshland pasture, all of them fine mares with tender foals. The north wind lusted for them as they grazed and mated with them as a blue-maned stallion. They conceived and gave birth to a dozen fillies who could prance over a field of grain and not ever break a tasseled ear, who could bound over the sea's broad back with their hooves on the crests of the breaking waves. Erechthonius begot Tros to rule the Trojans, and then from Tros three peerless sons were born, Ilus, Asarchus, and Ganymedes, a godlike man, the most beautiful mortal whom the gods snatched up because of his beauty to pour for Zeus and live with the immortals. Then Ilus had a son, peerless Laomedon, and Laomedon begot Tithonius, Priam, Clytius, and Hysation, a scion of Ares. Asaricus begot Capus, and he Anchises. Anchises begot me, and Priam Hector. These are my bloodlines, my proud lineage, but Zeus gives men their worth, or lessens it as he will, since he is strongest of all. 
Notice, again, we do get this really long speech. Like, it took me several minutes to just get through the entire, like, history of Troy according to Aeneas here. Um, and Aeneas presents it as the way that a lot of Homeric heroes thus far have presented their lineages. Like, many times we've seen, you know, two heroes square off and they start off by being like, Dude, I'm the son of Zeus. Yeah, well, you're the son of Zeus? Like, I'm the direct son of Ares or something. Like, the, this has happened fairly frequently. We've seen this before. But it's especially significant here, because Aeneas doesn't start with, you know, oh, I'm the son of Anchises and Aphrodite. Like, he tells us that. He leads with that. But then he's like, but really, like, this has much more to do with Troy and Dardanus, and, you know, like, I am the scion of Anchises, where, you know, Hector is the scion of Priam. And, like, we get this whole lineage. We get a brief fight, like, Achilles you know, Achilles blocks Aeneas's spear, like it only penetrates two of the layers, because apparently the gold layer that Hephaestus put in the middle of the shield is super-duper strong, because, like, it blocks multiple weapons this way. Um, and then Achilles throws a spear, and it, like, shatters Aeneas's shield, so clearly Aeneas is out of, like, out of his depth here. We get to phase two, which, again, as we've seen before, Aeneas picks up a stone, and now it's like the stone-throwing part of the competition. But before he manages to throw the stone, he gets rescued. Like, gets just whisked off the battlefield. And weirdly enough, by Poseidon, of all people, who is very much Team Greece, but apparently, like is really upset about the fact that Apollo has tricked Aeneas into fighting Achilles, even though Apollo is Team Troy and Aeneas is Team Troy, and theoretically Poseidon being Team Greek would rescue Greeks and not Trojans. Like, he even gets kind of, like, butted by Hera here. Like, Poseidon's like, I'm gonna go save Aeneas, he's not fated to die right now, and Hera's like, uh, I don't save Trojans because Trojans are the worst, and Poseidon is apparently less excited about this, so he whisks Aeneas off, magically returns the spear to Achilles, and that's the end of the fight. Like, all this lead-up, and yet no consequence here. Well, you know, as much as this is weird, and, like, Achilles even mentions, you know, obviously this was a divine intervention, that was super strange, what's up with that, um, we, as readers, should be even more baffled than Achilles here. Like, Achilles just waves this off. Yeah, gods are doing this all the time. Did you see what happened to, you know, Paris when he was whisked, whisked off by Aphrodite from the duel with Menelaus? Or, you know, this is actually Aeneas' second time being whisked off by a god, like Diomedes was going to kill him earlier, and he got first protected by Aphrodite and then whisked off by Apollo. Like, this isn't too weird if you're on the ground, but from a story standpoint, from a narrative standpoint, this is super weird. Like, Aeneas bumping into Diomedes kind of made sense. Diomedes was on a rampage, nobody fully appreciated what the deal was, Aeneas and Pandarus were hanging out together, and Pandarus had already got a shot off at him. Like, Aeneas squaring with Diomedes makes sense, and Aeneas having a fate that needs to be protected also makes sense, so it makes sense that he would get whisked off there. But here, the gods go out of their way to make Aeneas face off with Achilles, and then the gods go out of their way to make that fight inconclusive. It's very strange structurally, but it is a very vivid reminder of what is actually going down in this text. What is going to happen later, after Achilles manages to kill Hector, after the last page of this book is closed, after the last verse of the song is sung. 
Namely, we know that Aeneas is going to escape the destruction of Troy. And this whole rampage of Achilles, much as it does not end in the sack of Troy, you will notice that multiple times, multiple times over these several chapters, we are told that Achilles gets real close, that Troy is threatened by Achilles, that this is not just about Hector and Achilles, that Hector's fall means the destruction of Troy, that everyone knows that Troy is doomed at this point. As much as this is not a story of the fall of Troy, like that's a different story, that's a different epic, that's a different poem, that's a different set of heroes, Homer is very much stressing here that as much as the Iliad is just one small part of the greater story of the war against Troy, it is also trying to encapsulate the whole story itself. As much as this is just a handful of days in the middle of year nine of this ten-year war, Homer has managed to string together all of these events in such a way that these handful of days incorporate the whole war. It starts with Priam and Menelaus facing off because, remember, Priam and Menelaus are the cause of this. Priam abused Menelaus' wife, ran off with her, and Menelaus chased after him. The duel is essentially theirs. Likewise, here, at the very end of the text, or getting close to the end, we are repeatedly reminded of events that have not happened yet, weird as that may be to say. And we'll see a lot of this in chapter 23 as well, so be on the lookout for other events in the Iliad that seem kind of out of place that hearken to events that are really important that take place after the Iliad. Um, Aeneas is such an obvious example, though. It very much stands out as something that doesn't make sense from a narrative standpoint, but does very clearly draw our attention to the tradition surrounding Aeneas, his escape from Troy, his going on to found great cities like Rome, his whole legacy as the inheritor of all of this power. Like, his whole speech here reminds us that Aeneas, too, is an inheritor of the original legacy of Dardanus and of Illus himself. And I should stress, the whole thing is bullshit here. Like, this could very well, you know, not be known to Homer, but if anything, you know, all of the archaeological data, all of the evidence that, you know, the historical, like, record has presented to us suggests that Troy was here a long time before Dardanus, before like three generations before, you know, Aeneas. Um, by all the records, Troy is a city that was standing on that spot for probably close to 1500 years before the Trojan War, never mind the years after the Trojan War. Troy's been around a long time, long before, you know, Aeneas's grandfather, in short. Um, but what is stressed here. What Homer is going out of his way to talk about is Aeneas's inheritance, his heritage. And numerous gods will talk about this as well. Like a little later on, we get this line about the line of Dardanus must not be destroyed. Um, when, in fact, Poseidon is, you know, like, protecting Aeneas, sort of taking him out of the fight, we have this speech from him around line 300. Alas for great-hearted Aeneas, who will now be killed by Achilles and go down to Hades, because he innocently obeyed Apollo, who will do nothing to keep him from perishing. Why should he, a guiltless man, now suffer for the woes of others, a man who has always pleased the gods in heaven with his offerings? Let us deliver him from the shadow of death. 
Zeus will be angry if Achilles kills him, for it is destined that Aeneas escape and the line of Dardanus not be destroyed and disappear without seed. Dardanus, whom Zeus loved more than any of the sons born from his union with mortal women. The son of Cronus has come to hate Priam's line, and now Aeneas will rule the Trojans with might and the sons born to his sons in the future. You can't read this passage, at least not as a classical scholar aware of the context, and certainly not as an actual Greek listener who would have, like, absolutely been familiar with this, with the greater legacy and context of Aeneas's legacy, without recognizing that Poseidon is taught, is justifying the existence of Aeneas as the scion of Troy as the people who the Romans will point to as their particular inheritor and their particular uh, progenitor. The Romans identify themselves as the inheritors of Troy through Aeneas, and they justify that with passages in the Iliad like this, where, in fact, Homer, through Poseidon, is telling us directly Priam was the great father of Troy, the great rich king who had, you know, all those sons and daughters who had the greatest city in the world at this point in time. And as much as Aeneas is not Priam's son, that's because, as Poseidon tells us, Priam is cursed, hated by Zeus, for reasons that are completely inscrutable to us and honestly probably wouldn't even make sense if we tried, because we've seen Zeus get kind of misty-eyed about the Trojans multiple times here. Priam was fated to lose and lose hard. But Dardanus, the real, true progenitor of Troy, through Ilos, the guy who founded Troy itself, like true through Tros himself, gives us these three sons, Ilos will get cut off. Um, Ilos through Laomedon, through Priam, this has been the ruling group of Trojans for apparently multiple generations at this point, but they are now done. Zeus is trimming that line. They, he is taking it out entirely with the destruction of Troy and the destruction of Priam and his family. But that just opens up a different line from Tros, namely Asarchus's line, which gives us, ultimately, Aeneas. Now, I should also mention that there's like six different myths that we're encountering here in the speech of Aeneas as well. Like, we encounter the whole North Wind apparently had the hots for the really cool horses, that Dardanus had, and thus gave like birth to this line of horses that could like fly or something. Um, we also have the story of Ganymede, uh, the another one of the sons of Tros. Only Ganymede, if, if you are familiar with your mythology, is so hot that like Zeus runs off with Ganymede, abducts him, and turns him into his personal cupbearer slash fuckboy. Um, like, Aeneas's story is roping in a lot of mythological tradition beyond the context of this war, this story, as we have it here. We are invited to look at the greater legacy of Troy, the greater history of Troy, to sort of admire and acknowledge this great city that was destroyed by the Greeks, and recognize both its greatness and its legacy, the fact that it lives on in the person of Aeneas through this complicated family tree situation. And as much as you might very much wrinkle your nose at this and be like, why are we, you know, stopping this story to hear this elaborate, like, tale of genealogies and alternative myths, I should emphasize, for ancient cultures, this is hugely important to them. 
you know, just as we talked about way back in book two, there's that whole long, boring list of ships, and really it's all these, you know, Greeks getting really excited to hear their inclusion, their participation in the greatest historical event that any of them have any connection to. Here, this is about wisdom. This is about knowing your roots. This is about recognizing the truth of history and seeing where, you know, the great empires come from. This presages the greatness of Rome, which is even a thing in, in Homer's time, um, as much as it is a different thing. Um, it also very much connects Aeneas to a lot of supposedly Aeneid slash Aeneas sons and kids throughout the Greek world. Aeneas and the legacy of Troy live on. It is very much alive to many of the Greek hearers here. And while there will be times when the legacy of Troy is connected to, you know, the identity of the Persians and the enemies of the Greeks, at least here in Homer's time, it is much more connected to the Greeks themselves. So knowing Aeneas, knowing his future, knowing his legacy, knowing his role here in the, you know, just after the Greek Dark Ages, like, Greek world is important. This is a huge part of the greater cast of the story. Aeneas survives. This is important. And so Homer gives us this sort of play act where Aeneas faces off with the greatest, most dangerous Greek hero, namely Achilles, and then narrowly escapes with divine help to sort of echo, to remind us of that time that Achilles' son Neoptolemus is wrecking his way through Troy itself, sacking the city, killing Priam, laying waste to the shrine, killing anyone who gets in his way, and Aeneas escapes narrowly with divine help. We are sort of watching that myth play out in a new form here, even though it's awkward and doesn't seem to make sense. This happens a lot in the mythic tradition, in the epic tradition, in a lot of these stories. There are echoes. Myths are frequently echoed in other myths. We are encouraged to sort of let these myths bleed into one another, sort of fall over one another. As much as, you know, as much as we in the modern age are very much concerned with context and logic and, you know, the logical progression of events, cause and effect, and so on and so forth, for the Greeks this wasn't nearly as important. And in fact, they preferred a story where the myths bled over into each other, where the events attributed to one hero are now attributed to another hero, or where the, you know, identities are mixed up in certain cases, where Achilles and Neoptolemus become the same figure at the same time. You know, this is a kind of complex idea to wrap one's brain around, but this is really crucial to understanding the mythic perspective here. This is what the Greeks want from their story. They, in many cases, are not going to hear the whole picture of the whole mythic tradition. And if they did, there really wouldn't be any way to make any sense out of it. But because they do get this story... This story frequently tells us the stories that they don't hear, the stories they might not get the opportunity to hear. And so we have all of these traditions overlapping, interacting with each other, manipulating one another. And as much as, you know, there are a lot of scholars kind of searching for this canonical version of myth, this epic tradition that is set in stone and, you know, that does in fact have this logical cause and effect sort of relationship, 
I really don't think it's there to be found. Um, I don't think Homer worked from a tradition that we could constitute or consider obvious or clear the way that we might look at, say, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and say there is one version of events, one story being told here. No, as much as Homer may be drawing from the Little Iliad or from one of the other epic traditions, or alternatively the Little Iliad might be drawing from Homer, the fact of the matter is, it's a mess. It's supposed to be a mess. Because, again, nobody gets to go through Netflix and watch all of the, you know, various mythological retellings here. There is no, you know, crossover event, no cinematic universe, no, you know, no way to get everything that you've missed. The way that you get everything that you've missed is that you incorporate everything that you miss into every story. It's a sneaky and pretty clever artistic uh, technique here. So be on the lookout for it as we see it in other places. Now, that said, I don't want to get too bogged down in the chronology again. I want to sort of focus on the different things that are happening over these three uh, over these three books here. So the next thing I want to talk about, the next thing I sort of want to discuss, which kind of does rope into this idea of like the overlapping texts and the bleeding of one myth into another, is the gods. Um, book 20 and book 21 spend a lot of time talking about the gods. Because the opening of book 20 is effectively Zeus saying, all right, it's a free-for-all. Like, we start with a literal assembly of the gods. Zeus apparently summons every immortal being, every god who is in the Greek-slash-Anatolian universe, and basically sends them to an assembly and is like, okay, here's the deal, my moratorium is done, go nuts. And this means all the major gods that we're familiar with, our Athena and our Hera and our Aphrodite and Ares and Apollo and so on, but also, like, the minor gods, you know, gods who do in fact hang out on Olympus but haven't been that important to this story, gods like Leto or Hephaestus or Hermes, and for that matter, like, random, like, tree spirits and river spirits and so on and so forth, all of them are included here, and Zeus basically says, okay, moratorium over, I'm not going to try and make rules about you anymore, we can't let the Trojans just stand up to Achilles, because Achilles will systematically wreck his way through them. So if you want to support the Greeks, go support the Greeks. You want to go support the Trojans? Great, go support the Trojans. Let there be divine chaos. And Zeus apparently just sits back and watches. Like, there's even a point where he's just kind of, like, sitting there on Olympus eating popcorn while all hell breaks loose, because literally all the gods are fighting each other. He seems to enjoy this, um, as crazy as this might seem. So we should start by kind of getting a sense of who's playing on what side. Um, fortunately, Homer gives us like two straight-up stanzas right around line 36 and 37 that gives us the breakdown, the rosters, so to speak. On the Greek side were Hera and Pallas Athena, and Poseidon Earthshaker, and Hermes the Helper, his mind sharp as needles, and Hephaestus, who exuded strength though he limped along on his spindly legs. The Trojans got Ares, his helmet flashing, Apollo and the archer goddess Artemis, Leto, Xanthus, and smiling Aphrodite. So let's break this down a little bit. Like, why do the gods divide up the way that they do? Um, obviously, Hera and Athena are really clear-cut. Like, they were the ones offended by Aphrodite, by Paris's choice, and by Paris's abduction of Helen, so they are Team Greece all the way. We knew this from the beginning of the text, no surprise there. 
Um, Poseidon teams up on the Greek side, and again, we're not entirely sure why. Like, he has been fighting for the Greeks for a while now, ever since, you know, he managed to, like, get Zeus distracted back in Book 12 or 13 or something and sort of slip in and start helping Idomeneus and, you know, the Greeks after most of the heroes have been taken out. Poseidon is clearly Team Greece, though, again, it's not entirely clear why that's the case, why he prefers the Greeks over the Trojans. And you'll notice Poseidon is the most ambivalent of the three Greek you know, predominantly Greek gods and goddesses that we've seen so far. Like, he's the one who does rescue Aeneas, a Trojan, even though theoretically, you know, he should be anti-Aeneas and should totally be okay with Achilles killing him, to the point that even Hera rebukes him for this. Hermes is even more ambiguous, though. Like, Hermes has barely had a role to play in this epic so far. Um, we've barely ever seen him except doing some some of his messenger duties. Um, and I kind of love that he's kind of Team Greece here, but really doesn't do all that much fighting. Like, there's a great face-off a little while later where Hermes and Leto face off, and, you know, he's like, can we just just not do this? Like, I'll, I'll act like you beat the crap out of me, and we'll just go forward our merry way, and Leto is apparently cool with this, and that's what they do. Um, like, Hermes isn't a war god. He doesn't mix it up all that often. He is usually best known for being inventive and fast and for delivering things from place to place. He will absolutely give a hero all the advantages that he can, like outfit them, outfit him with swag and, you know, tell him all the secrets about how to defeat people. Like, we'll see him do this for Odysseus and, and the Odyssey. Um, when Perseus is getting ready to face off against horrible monsters like the Medusa, Hermes is the one who usually guides him to finding out secret information or how to defeat monsters and giving him swag in, in doing so. Um, so Hermes is apparently Team Greece for reasons unknown, but he doesn't even do all that much fighting. He kind of just slips out of it when it, when it kind of comes to that. Hephaestus, on the other hand, we do get a better sense of what he's about. Like, Hephaestus has a horse in this race. Um, he is definitely on his mom's side here. Like, again, Hephaestus usually takes his mom's side when it comes to quarrels between mom and dad, namely Zeus and Hera. Um, but we should also notice that Hephaestus, he made the armor, the really awesome armor that Achilles is wearing. So he's kind of shown a fondness for the Greeks throughout, whether his mom's on that team or not. Um, so it makes sense that he would be Team Greece here. And when Hephaestus does, in fact, take off the gloves and face off against the Scamander, that's something to behold, but we'll talk about that in a moment. For the Trojans, again, most of Team Troy is kind of makes sense. Like, notice that Aphrodite isn't mentioned here, or rather, she's mentioned last because, you know, she's not a war goddess and therefore not all that helpful. Remember the one time we've seen her in battle, she very much got injured pretty quickly, and we're going to see her get injured again now that the gods are starting to face off to one another. Um, likewise, we get Apollo, who has been Team Troy from start to finish in this epic, um, though you'll notice that he too kind of has a hands-off approach, kind of like the way that Hermes does. Um, like You'll notice that Apollo very much gets challenged by Poseidon halfway through this text, and Poseidon's like, well, you know, I don't want to be a coward. You don't want to be a coward, so I guess we're going to have to fight each other. And Apollo's like, dude, if we fight each other, like Poseidon, god of the sea, and Apollo, the shining god, the greatest of the gods, like, this is going to be ugly. Like, people are going to die here. We're going to wreck this whole city to the foundation. So I'm out. Like, 
Apollo does not want any part of this. And the Artemis even gets mad at him. Like, what are you doing? Backing down from a fight. Apollo's like, dude, that's not my jam. And he just walks away. Um, which is so fascinating. Like, I love Apollo's presentation throughout this epic. He's such a fascinating god character. Because on the one hand, he does mix it up. But he kind of never gets his hands dirty, is the trick. Like, he will absolutely take out Patroclus. He will absolutely just smack Diomedes around. But at the same time, when it comes to, okay, so we're going to have a real fight now. Like, I'm really going to, you know, throw down and it's going to be blow for blow here. Apollo's just not into it. Like, nope. I'm either going to circle around and just end you in one shot, or I'm not going to fight. And on the one hand, you kind of scratch your head and is like, well, that sounds really dishonorable. That's really gross. Apollo really doesn't seem like a decent, upstanding person. But it's really hard to even say that about him because, again, he's so powerful. He's one and done here. You know, if in fact it came to fighting, he doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Like, Diomedes charges him with his spear and he just kind of flicks him away. Like, Patroclus charges up the walls and he just flicks him away. So clearly, if it did come to mixing it up, Apollo could hold his own. He just doesn't. That's not the way he does things. That's part of his character, it seems. Um, we also see Artemis throw down here, like a couple of times. She'll she'll you know actually mix it up. Um, like I said, you know, trying to back up Apollo when when he refuses to fight things like that. Um, Artemis is typically scary. She's clearly on Team Troy for some reason. We're not sure exactly why she's on Team Troy. Um, like, apparently they've given her good sacrifices, I guess. But, you know, that doesn't seem to mean anything because the primary goddess hanging around and that the Greek Trojans have sacrificed to is clearly Athena. And she doesn't give a shit about them. So, you know, who knows what that means. Um, at any rate, Artemis is Team Troy, presumably because Apollo is Team Troy. Which also explains why Leto is Team Troy. Like, Leto is the mother of Apollo and Artemis. You know, we haven't talked about her because she hasn't shown up at all in this text up until this point. But yeah, presumably the entire family is on Team Troy for whatever reason. I don't know. The last one we really need to talk about is Xanthus, though. Xanthus is the Scamander. You know, the river. And again, the Greeks have a fairly broad notion of what constitutes a divine or an immortal or a god or a goddess. And that includes river spirits, tree spirits, like glade spirits. You know, again, when Zeus calls the assembly of the gods, you'll notice that the lines there are pretty ambiguous. They all came, every last river except ocean, and every last spirit woman who ever haunted a pretty copse, spring, or meadow. Like, meadows apparently have goddesses random spirits who just sit around protecting them. Uh, likewise, so does the river here. And I kind of want to stress, because the river does throw down. Like, we get a battle scene between Achilles and a river, and it's awesome, by the way. Like, I don't teach that section in my mythology class, which is a huge bummer, because it's fascinating to sort of walk through what all is going there. Um, and notice, you know, we do get these face-offs, and I do want to talk about the face-offs in their own right, um, but we also get just, like, this big epic god battle scene right here at the beginning of book 20, around line 60 or so, 
Um, like, it starts right, right after those two stanzas I was reading. As long as the gods had been on the sidelines, the Greek kept, Greeks kept on winning. Achilles' reappearance after his absence from the war had reduced the Trojans to spineless jelly. They quivered helplessly when they saw the hero glowing in metal like the war god himself. But when the Olympians joined the human fray, Strife, who drives armies on, lifted her head, and Athena shouted, now by the trench. Then long cries from the beach where the surf pounded in. On the other side, Ares responded, roaring to the Trojans like a dark whirlwind on the city's height, then swooping down along the Simois banks and across Calicolone. In this way, the gods prompted the two armies to clash in combat. Strife exploded in each camp. Overhead, the father of gods and men thundered, and Poseidon shook all the ground underneath, and the tremors climbed the steep mountain slopes. Ida shuddered from her roots to her peaks, along with Troy herself and the Achaean ships. And in the world below, the Lord of the Shades, unseen Hades, leapt from his throne and shrieked, terrified that Poseidon would crack open the earth and his halls would lie open to immortals and men, the moldering horror loathed even by the gods. Such was the force of the gods in collision. Notice... Like, this is apparently a huge enough battle with huge enough consequences that we're talking about massive earthquakes, thunder and lightning, like, the very forces of nature are riled up in this situation, so much so that the mountains, the walls, and the ships are trembling, and Hades himself gets up from his throne to ensure that the world of the dead is not broken open for all to see. Like, this is the first appearance of Hades the god, and it is a striking one that he is willing to, like, that he's actually disturbed by this. Like, Hades doesn't get up for anyone. Ever. Like, any of the mythologies or any of the myths that tell us about, like, guys going into Hades for various quests, they usually find Hades sitting on his throne doing his job, and that's how he's always depicted. Heracles shows up to steal his dog, and Hades is just like, can you go, please? Like, apparently after Heracles wounds him with a spear, and everyone just, like, lets this happen. Um, this is, you know, like, you do not mess with Hades. Hades does not mess with mortal life. Hades just wants to be left alone. So this threat to the entire established order of the universe, brought about by Poseidon apparently threatening to break the ground and sort of let the underworld and overworld mix it up together, is a big deal here. This is huge. Um, additionally, you'll notice that the individual gods very much do face off at various times throughout Book 20 and Book 21. Uh, we get a couple of like flashes of combat, like we see around uh, line 71. Poseidon facing off against Apollo, Ares against Athena, Hera against Apollo uh, against uh, Artemis, um, Leto against Hermes, Hephaestus against Scamander. Um, but we also get, like, straight-up long passages where the gods really do face off against one another. Um, so we have, like, around line 400 in Book 21, we get this passage, Ares began with an assault on Athena, landing in front of her with a bronze spear. What are you doing now, dogfly, setting the gods against each other, whatever way your high spirits dictate? Remember when you goaded on Diomedes to wound me? With everyone watching, you guided the spear into my noble flesh? You'll pay the price now for what you did then. And Athena just wrecks him. Like, she picks up this giant piece of rock and just crushes Ares. And then, like... 
Aphrodite shows up to sort of swoop away with Ares in tow, and Athena just punches her in the gut, or punches her in the breast, like we get a boob punch here from the girls. Um, so Athena apparently just wrecks both Athena and Aphrodite and just kicks them out. May everyone who fights for Troy against the Greeks wind up like this, she says, and may they be as brave as Aphrodite was when she helped Ares and confronted me. We would have ended this war a long time ago and destroyed Ilion's foundation stone. We also get the Apollo-Poseidon fight here that I was talking about. Like, Poseidon tries to goad Apollo and you know, like, apparently they've squared off before, and it was this whole thing, but it was over this, you know, confusion, like Apollo was on the wrong side the whole time. And again, this is where Apollo just shoots him down. Earthshaker, he says, around line 475, you would call me imprudent if I fought with you for the sake of mortals, pitiful creatures who, like, leaves on a tree, flame briefly to light life, eat the fruit of the fields, then wither and die. No, we should desist immediately and let them fight on their own. And Apollo withdrew too well-bred to slug it out with his paternal uncle. Like, I love that. Like, Poseidon's like, hey, dude, you want to throw down? Like, everybody else is doing it. And Apollo is like, for these worms? Never mind. I'm not interested. Like, Apollo throughout this text has been too great for human conflict here. Like, he is fighting for the Trojans because of his own personal vendettas or because Zeus tells him to, but he is just not caught up with their own lives, their own petty struggles. He is very much, throughout this text, an arbiter of fate alone. He represents the forces beyond even the gods in some respect. He's too well-bred to actually throw down with a god. But notice that Artemis, she responds exactly the way we would expect. His hellcat sister Artemis, queen of wild things, reviled him mercilessly. Running away, Apollo? What a collapse. Poseidon can claim an easy victory now. That bow you carry is as worthless as wind. Don't let me catch you bragging again as you always used to in our father's house that you would take on Poseidon in open combat. And Apollo is just not interested. Again, he turns away without a word. But Hera shows up. And she, like, rips Artemis's bow apart and just beats her up with them. So apparently Hera can throw down when she has a mind to, which is kind of shocking, because you would expect Artemis to be way better equipped for a fight than Hera is. Like, Artemis is the goddess of the hunt. She's the goddess of nature. Again, she's described as a hellcat here for a reason. Like, if Apollo is too well-bred to fight Poseidon, Artemis is never well-bred. She is totally willing to throw down anytime, anywhere. She is a force of nature, quite literally, in her own right. And yet Hera, Hera just takes her apart. Um, it's embarrassing. Like, we have seen Hera withdrawing from the fight over and over, letting Athena do most of the dirty work throughout the, this text. Finally, she squares off against this other goddess, and it gets ugly fast. Um, I suspect that part of this might be the Greeks making commentary about women here. Like, if you do want some some ammunition for accusing Homer of misogyny, there's actually some pretty good stuff to be found here. But I'd also just kind of point to experience on this one. Women fighting are terrifying. Like, I don't say that as trying to, you know be misogynistic or, or make women out to be terrible people, just like, in my experience, when in, like, just high school or college, like, you saw two dudes throw down, and they beat the living crap out of each other, and then they just get up and move on with their lives. Like, the, it was not anything personal. They would just beat each other up and 
that would be it. Like, occasionally, if it was, if it did get more personal, that would be considered dishonorable or weird in some way. Like, if somebody really was going for the throat, we'd be like, dude, calm down. Like, this is just a fight. Um, whereas when girls fought in high school or college, they fought to kill. Like, they were immediately going for the eyes and scratching at each other's faces. Like, it was terrifying. They wanted nothing less than bloodshed. Um, and it was just strange. And I think Homer is tapping into that here. He's recognizing that women, when they fight, are terrifying in a way that even men aren't. Like, we've seen lots of men killing the shit out of each other over the course of this text, but it always proceeds with a certain formality, a certain honor. You know, everybody stands around, they insult each other a little bit, and then, like, they throw spears at each other, and then they throw rocks at each other, and then they pull out the swords and they end it. Like, this is how it's gone over and over and over again. If they aren't killed by the spear throw, they move on to the rocks, and so we proceed. But Hera? Grabbing the weapon, tearing it apart, and beating Artemis with it? Like... There is something purely wild about this, which fits the fact of Artemis's own wildness, her sort of association with animals and beasts, but also the vicious jealousy that we associate with Hera. Like, this is not a good look for the women that Homer is presenting here, but this is in character with the mythological figures that we're dealing with. Homer, may, much as this may be a misogynistic interpretation of their characters, and we should be right to question this, is also tapping into an even deeper misogynistic assumption about these two characters and the mythology that surrounds them. Women are terrifying. This is something that is both true and also misogynistic. Good luck trying to separate the truth from the misogyny here. But I also love that like this is what turns Hermes off. Like, at this, Hermes turned to Leto and said, Tell you what, Leto, I won't fight with you. Zeus's wives are pretty tough customers. You have my permission to boast openly that you have beaten the daylights out of me. Like, he looks at the women fighting, Hera wrecking Artemis, and he's like, You know what? I don't want to mess with Zeus's wives. Women are frightening. Peace. I'm out. By all means, tell whoever you want. You bested Hermes in combat. And Leto's, like, shrugs and is like, Cool. And he's off. And it's just kind of a fascinating dynamic here. Sort of funny and sort of mean and sort of ridiculous and sort of misogynistic and sort of true and I don't know. I'll stop reading this for you. You by all means come to your own conclusions. Um, the last real god duel is the one between Hephaestus and uh, Xanthus, and we need to lead up to that, because as much as I've had fun talking about the gods here, remember this is Achilles' show here. And Achilles is laying waste to the Trojans in Book 20 and 21. And you'll even notice, like, as much as we, as I spent a whole lot of time in the last lecture saying, you know, Achilles' reason is now aligned with his rage, that's not what it looks like in practice. Like, you may have missed it because, again, this is something that we've seen before, but the one thing that really characterizes every one of the times that Achilles throws down with a hero here in sections 20 and 21 is that while most heroes, when they square off, start by insulting each other and then move to the killing portion, Achilles kills before there is even an insult and then insults the dead body. Like, this is a pattern throughout this passage. 
He insults Aeneas for disappearing in front of his face. He insults Lycaon when he kills him rather than sparing him. He insults, like, the bodies that he leaves in Xanthus. Like, this is apparently what Achilles is into right now. He just kills and kills and kills and kills, and we have an enormous body count for the various people that Achilles kills here. Like, we get tons of names that are just kind of thrown out here. But over and over again, it is followed up with Achilles just flat-out insulting the dead body of his assailant. Like, you even thought you could compete with me. That is why you are lying here dead. Notice, too, that some of his decisions here are also strangely motivated. Uh, like, let's pick up around line 31 in Book 21, because this passage is particularly relevant and, and sort of a good sort of case study for what's going on with Achilles and his rage now that he is trying to avenge Patroclus. Um, first off, he starts by capturing people from the river. Like, he apparently is driving the Trojans into the river, Scamander, and killing them as they sort of, like, flounder in the water. This is apparently his big move at the end of Book 20 and the beginning of Book 21, which, as we'll see, pisses off the river itself. Um, so he's killing them. He's just killing them all, indiscriminately. Um, finally, he stops killing them long enough to, as we're told, cull twelve boys live from the river to pay for the blood of Ted Patroclus. We've been told why he's doing this, like he told us back in book 18 and 19 when he was mourning the body of Patroclus. He is going to make a sacrifice, a human sacrifice of twelve sons of Priam to Patroclus as payment for his death. And I should stress, much as we've seen that this is like the second instance of human sacrifice in the whole mythology surrounding the Trojan War, the first one being the sacrifice of Iphigenia by Agamemnon to get the winds to work for him, um, notice, I should stress, like, this is not normal. The Greeks generally do not like human sacrifice. The gods frown upon it, generally, and so do the Greeks in their myth-telling. Um, most mythological traditions surrounding the, the whole Greek pantheon and the whole Greek mythological business do not advocate human sacrifice. This is a pretty clear-cut indication to us that Achilles is inconsolable and not in his right mind here. Um, this is an act of terrible cruelty on Achilles' part. And on the one hand... We do respect this. Like, Achilles can pull this off. He is this giant hero, the greatest fighter on, in the Trojan War, period, the end. But at the same time, the evidence that Homer is giving us here is not that Achilles is now reformed. No, Achilles' rage has transformed, not abated. It, is, it hasn't transformed into something good or better for him. It has transformed into something truly horrifying. Something that is pointed in the right direction. Like the rage of Achilles at this point is truly a marvel to see. And the Greeks are absolutely beside themselves with ecstasy that he is fighting for their side at long last. But Homer is emphasizing the cost here. Even when his priorities are aligned, even when Achilles' rage is subservient to the Greek interest at large, Achilles is not a good person. He's still a monster. 
he is still making decisions that other Greeks would cringe at. Um, and notice how the, how this change is reflected in his, his interaction with Lycaon here. Um, line 40, on the way back he met a son of Priam, Lycaon by name, running from the river. This boy Achilles had captured once before in his father's orchard where he had come one night to cut fig saplings for chariot rails, but found Achilles' iron mask in his face. That time Achilles sold him, for a good price, to Jason's son on Lemnos, where he had shipped him. A family friend, Aetion of Imbros, had ransomed him for even more money and sent him to Arisbe. From there he managed to make his way home. For eleven days he celebrated with friends his escape from Lemnos. On the twelfth day Zeus gave him back to Achilles, who would send him now off again against his will, this time to Hades. Notice the whole relationship here. This is not the first time that Achilles has run across Lycaon. The first time, Achilles just sort of like stumbled across him in his orchard where, you know, like Achilles has come to, you know, basically engage in night adventures and Achilles captured him, sold him for a really good price off of the island of Anatolia or Anatolia whatsoever to the random dude on the island of Lemnos who then like sold him back to his parents for three times the price. Like, this is a normal practice in the ancient world, and indeed in the medieval world as well. In fact, a lot of heroes get their swag, get wealthy, by capturing other important nobles and heroes and selling them back to their families for a decent price. You know, you'll notice that the same thing is offered here for Hector's body by Priam. This is a smart play, and that's why Achilles does it. It is beneficial to him overwhel overwhelmingly. Um, but here, notice, that's not how it's going to go. Like, Lycaon, through the ire of the gods, has managed to sort of be in Troy for all of 12 days before Zeus delivers him right back into Achilles' hands. And Lycaon is, like, nervously laughing about this. Um, Lycaon approached in a daze, intent on grasping his knees. All he wanted was to wriggle away from death and black fate. Um, I am at your knees, Achilles, he says, line 79. Pity me. You have to respect me as your suppliant, for I tasted of Demeter's holy grain with you on that day you took me captive in the orchard and sent me far from my father and friends, sold into sacred Lemnos for a hundred oxen. I ransomed myself for three times that. This morning was my twelfth since getting back to Ilion after many hard turns, and now fate has put me in your hands again. Father Zeus must hate me to give me to you twice. My mother bore me for a shortened life, Laotoe, old Altes' daughter, Altes, etc., etc., and so on and so forth. Um, but I'll say this too, and you can think it over. Don't kill me, since I'm not from the same womb as Hector, who killed your gentle, valiant friend. Now, notice, Lycaon appeals to Achilles' pity, and also to good godliness here. You have to respect me as your suppliant, he says, for I tasted Demeter's holy grain with you. We broke bread together. Now notice, this is a re reference back to that holy, sacred Greek code of hospitality, the same one that we saw back when in Book 6 when Diomedes runs across like the son of Bellerophon, and he and Glaucus are like, hey, we actually have family connections, let's exchange armor and go our separate ways. Hospitality is an important bond here. Like Kaon broke bread with Achilles when he was Achilles' prisoner, they have a connection, a relationship, and therefore Achilles, by the law of Zeus, can't kill him. But notice Achilles' response. Shut up, fool, and stop talking ransom. 
Before Patroclus meant his destiny, it was more to my taste to spare Trojan lives, capture them, and sell them overseas. But now they all die. Every last Trojan God puts into my hands before Ilion's walls, all of them, and especially Priam's children. You die too, friend. Don't take it hard. Patroclus died, and he was far better than you. Take a look at me. Do you see how huge I am? How beautiful? I have a noble father. My mother was a goddess, but I too am in death's shadow. There will come a time, some dawn or evening or noon in this war, when someone will take my life from me with a spear thrust or an arrow from a string. He spoke, like hands, knees, and heart went slack. He let go the spear and sat there, both hands outstretched. Achilles drew his own sword and struck near the collarbone. The whole blade sank into his trunk, and he fell prone to the ground, black blood trickling out and wetting the dirt. And we get, again, Achilles insulting the corpse. Lie there with the fish. They will lick the blood from your wounds, your cold funeral rites. Your mother will not lay you on a bier and lament. No, eddying Scamander will roll you out to sea, and fish will dart up under the black ripples and nibble at Lycaon's shining fat. All of you Trojans will die like that. Die all the way back to Troy's sacred town as I whittle you down from behind. Your river won't help you with his silver eddies. The water you've sanctified, no doubt, with bulls and with live horses thrown into his pools. No, you'll all die. Ugly deaths until you have paid for the Greeks' loss, for Patroclus dead, killed by the ships while I was away. Notice the Greeks have a very strong sense of how you respect the dead. The dead if not respected, will come back to haunt you, mess with you, petition the gods against you. All of that is bad news. And that's why so many of the Greeks and the Trojans have insisted, you know, protect my body, make sure it's not defiled. Like Hector himself, when he challenges uh, Ajax, when he issues his broad challenge to the Greeks, says, you know, we'll fight each other, one of us will die, and we just promise that whoever does die, their body will be treated well, returned to the people who had them. Hooray. Like, Hector even offers the same offer to Achilles when they square off. But Achilles here is going out of his way to defile bodies, leaving them in the river to rot, to be carried downstream to the ocean, never to be returned to their families. He's missing out on a big profit opportunity by doing this. Again, you can sell bodies back to their families in order to, you know, receive those burial rights, and therefore Achilles is giving up a lot of money here, but also just be out of spite, out of his rage. He just despises every Trojan, dead or alive. Lie there with the fish, he says, insulting him, deriding the corpse. They will lick the blood from your wound. You will never lay on a bier, and, and your mother will never get the opportunity to lament you. Like, Achilles revels in this. And notice that the gods themselves are disgusted by this. This is why Scamander fights Achilles. Like, notice that no god has ever squared off against a mortal directly in this book. E either we'll get, like, a god uses a mortal to square off against a god, like Athena using Diomedes to stab Ares, or you'll get, like, Apollo flicking humans off of him, like, don't mess with me, or you'll get a god empowering mortals to help defeat other mortals, like we've seen multiple times in this text. But here, Scamander's like, dude, stop dropping dead Trojans into my river, and he literally fights Achilles here. Um, 
we get this epic scene in, you know, right around line 243. He spoke, and Achilles took a flying leap off the bank and came down in midstream. The, rusher, the river rushed upon him in full speed, and with all the force of its current swept along the bodies of Achilles' many victims and washed them ashore, roaring like a bull. At the same time, he sheltered the living in deep pools where his water, water flowed smooth. Around Achilles, the wall of water arced high and pushed against his shield. He lost his footing and grasped an elm a tall, stately tree, but it fell uprooted, and tearing away the bank crashed with its thick branches into the water, bridging the river's width. Like, we get the closest thing to a modern action scene we've seen in this text here. Like, as much as, you know, Homer has had a lot of battle scenes, like, you know, this dude throws this spear, and it goes into the neck, and he's dead, and then, like, this one penetrates the shield, but this one grazes it, like, this is, you know, a whole different order here. Like, we see blow by blow what it means for a human being to get, like, smashed by a river. The river suddenly bursting forth against him, um, pulling up trees and ripping apart, like, the, the land itself. Like, we're told a little while later that apparently this whole process has flooded the entire plain of Troy. And we get, like, Scamander is apparently joining up with one of the other rivers, and he's like, hey, join me, and we'll totally wreck all of the Greeks right here, right now. Like, we're talking about massive natural disaster here, caused in order to get back at Achilles, to fight the Greeks. Like, this is what it looks like when the gods go to war. But importantly, this is where, you know, Athena um, and, and Achilles, like, petition the gods to help him, and Hephaestus shows up and sets everything on fire. And because of the fire, the water is boiling off and it has to recede. Xanthus has to retreat back into its own, you know, riverbed. Like, this is the order of destruction that Achilles is causing here. And he is causing it specifically because his rage is blinding him so much to his own actions, now against the Trojans instead of the Greeks, that it is piling up defilements. The gods are offended at, what, at the devastation, the destruction, the defilement, the sheer body count that Achilles is laying waste to. It's truly horrifying here. Um, so... All of this destruction is in the wake of what Achilles is doing and Achilles' bad decisions here. His rage has not stopped, has not even changed all that much. It's just been redirected. Achilles is still, if anything, more mad than he was before. And it, his anger, his rage, is causing him to destroy the Trojans in truly awful ways. Ways that even the Greeks would be upset by. Like, as much as we read this, and are tempted to read this, as the big triumphant return of the hero, the moment that we've all been waiting for, you know, Captain America standing against Thanos with the hammer in hand, like, this is not that scene. This is just destruction. Senseless, pointless, and cruel. Achilles is, if anything, more of a monster now than he has been at any point in this text. And we are not meant to revere him, respect him. Like, as much as we might take him as a role model for his strength and his character and for, you know, his love of his friends and for avenging Patroclus, we should be horrified at what he does as a consequence. Homer does not invite us to see this as triumphant. Over and over and over again, Achilles punctuates his triumph with 
these disgusting depictions of dead bodies being run over by cartwheels or, you know, the fish eating the corpses. Like, that's part of why I bet Homer includes all of these insults. The post-mortem insults of Achilles. Achilles is not supposed to be seen as heroic in this sense. Um, Achilles, for all his strength and all his might, for all of his transformation in the preceding chapters, is still cruel, horrible, monstrous. And remember, this should remind us all the way back to book one when Agamemnon said, you actually like war. The same insult that Zeus posed at Ares. Achilles is a necessary evil for the Greek army. Agamemnon does respect Achilles' fighting prowess, but there's a reason why Agamemnon insults him in that passage. And we see that reason here and now. Achilles fighting isn't something you necessarily want on your side. It would be way more honorable to win this fight without him. And as much as the Greeks were losing, they might have been losing better than they are winning now. Achilles' rage may not be a weapon they, that anyone wants to wield. Now, notice, part of this rage is also bad for Achilles. Like, after all of the fighting between the gods, and after the river, like, recedes enough that, you know, Achilles is now charging back over the plain, killing Trojans left and right again, we get this passage where, finally, like, this one rando shows up to challenge him as the Trojan gates are open, so everyone can flee inside. Um, so Agenor decides that he's going to stall Achilles. Like, he's going to stand in Achilles' way and hopefully, like, lead him off long enough for the Trojans to evacuate back into the city. Because at this point, it's a full-fledged retreat, and really, can you blame them? The entire natural world is out of order. Floods, fires, earthquakes. Like, yeah, I'd get out, too. But Agenor stands up against him, and Apollo apparently gives him a little bit of power to, like, hold him off a little bit. And then, as soon as it actually gets to real fighting, Apollo whisks him away, disguises himself as Agenor, and runs, leading Achilles in his rage to chase after Agenor slash Apollo. And this is actually a tactic on Apollo's part, to draw Achilles and his bloodlust away from their treating Trojans. Apollo, even better than Agenor, buys time. And Apollo takes Agenor's sort of strategy here and ramps it up to the... To the proper level that would be necessary in order to keep Achilles from killing all these Trojan soldiers. Apollo single-handedly rescues the Trojan army here, basically. Which leaves Hector. Now, we need to walk through Hector's whole situation here in Book 22, because it is truly fascinating and also rather heartbreaking. Book 22 starts and ends with speeches about Hector and the fallout of Hector's death. And the entire rest of the Iliad is going to very much dwell on this. So let's take a look at it. Around line 32-ish, you know, Achilles has been drawn off by Apollo and is returning to the walls of Troy. Priam sees him coming, and Priam shouts down to Hector, who is still, in fact, outside of the western gate. And he calls down and says, Hector, my boy, you can't face Achilles alone like that without any support. You'll go down in a minute. He's too much for you, son. He won't stop at anything. 
Oh, if only the gods loved him as I do, vultures and dogs would be gnawing his corpse, then some grief might pass from my heart. So many fine sons he's taken from me, killed or sold them as slaves in the islands. And he goes on to list them. So come inside the wall, my boy, he says, around line 63. Live to save the men and women of Troy. Don't just hand Achilles the glory and throw your, wife, or throw your life away. Show some pity for me before I go out of my mind with grief, and Zeus finally destroys me in my old age after I have seen all the horrors of, of war. And Priam goes on to describe many of those horrors. Priam is presented here as a very pitiable character. Achilles has killed so many of his sons at this point. So many of his sons have died in this war. So much of his city and his wealth have been destroyed. And now here's Hector, the favored son, the logical inheritor of Priam's city and Priam's power, standing alone in front of the gate. And Priam knows that if it comes to a fight between Achilles and Hector, that Hector is doomed. Now, Hector has said before that he thinks that it's not quite that clear, that, you know, the gods will grant victory to who they will. Yes, Achilles is the better fighter. Hector is more than happy to admit that. But Hector also knows, as we've been shown many times throughout this text, that that's only half the story. That, you know, gods make bow strings break and, and like, the helmet straps snap and... Really, there have been many occasions where an inferior fighter has taken on a superior fighter and gotten away, like Euphorbus taking out Patroclus, or like, you know, Priam managed, or Paris managing to incapacitate Odysseus, um, or Diomedes, rather. In all of these cases, this happens. So Hector is counting on, you know, Zeus is behind me, the gods have favored me, Yes, things are looking pretty grim right now. Not sure how trustworthy all that is, but still, you know, these things happen. And so he has stood forward. He has rejected Polydamus's advice and held the field rather than retreat to the walls of Troy once Achilles announced himself. We also see Hecuba here appealing to Hector. Hector, my child, if ever I've soothed you with this breast, remember it now, son, and have pity on me. Don't paint yourself against that madman. Come inside the wall. If Achilles kills you, I will never go to get to mourn you laid out on a bier, O oh, my sweet blossom, nor will Andromache, your beautiful wife, but far from us both, dogs will eat your body by the Greek ships. Both Priam and Hecuba call down to Hector, do not do this. And Priam even gives him good reasons. Come inside the wall so you can fight again. We need you. If you die today, then that is one less day of you defending us, protecting us. You have this loyalty to your city, to your family, to your fellow troops. Don't throw that away. But notice how Hector is thinking through this situation. This is line 114 of book 22. Now what? If I take cover inside, Polydamus will be the first to reproach me. He begged me to lead the Trojans back to the city on that black night when Achilles rose, but I wouldn't listen. And now I've destroyed half the army through my recklessness. So Hector's first thought here is, I can't back down. It would be incredibly dishonorable to do so. I made the choice that we would sit in the field and face off against Achilles. And he now sees it was a terrible decision. Polydamus was right. They should have withdrawn by night to Troy and protected themselves with, themselves with Troy's walls while Achilles was mourning Patroclus. That he wouldn't listen, and now he's destroyed half the army through his, rec through his recklessness. If he goes back in that city, he will have already lost face with every soldier who he told that they could stand up against Achilles. How many people lie dead 
because of Hector's bad call there. I can't face the Trojan men and women now, he goes on. Can't bear to hear some lesser man say, Hector trusted his strength and lost the army. That's what they'll say. I'll be much better off facing Achilles, either killing him or dying honorably before the city. So he can't go back inside. He cannot face the wives, the daughters, the sisters, the friends and the fathers, the fellow soldiers of all those people who died today because of his blunder. He can't do it. He relies too much on that honor, on what they say about him. Remember all of the times that he told Paris, I don't know how you can stand there being insulted by your fellows and still sit in your tower and ignore them. And Paris is apparently immune to this. Paris is indifferent to honor. But for Hector, he's always taken it so seriously. If you are looking for a tragic flaw here, this is probably it. Because the smart play here is to go back inside the wall. But Hector cares about what his countrymen think of him. It's what makes him who he is. It is both his greatest strength, the reason why he's out in the field fighting for them day after day, and also his great weakness, the thing that causes him to throw his life away here at the moment where it is most needed. So he considers a different option. But what if I lay down all my weapons? Bossed shield, heavy helmet, prop my spear against the wall, and go meet Achilles, promise him we'll surrender Helen, and everything Paris brought back with her in his ship's holds to Troy. That was the beginning of this war. Give it all back to the sons of Atreus, and divide everything else in the town with the Greeks, and swear a great oath not to hold anything back, but share it all equally. All the treasure in Troy sit it up. In short, Hector says, well, what if we surrender? What if we give up? Like, we can come to an equitable arrangement here. We'll give back everything the Greeks wanted, and we'll also, you know, throw in, like, half the wealth of the city. You know, they get the wealth without bloodshed. We get to survive and go about our business, admittedly less wealthy than before, but whatever. At least everyone lives. Andromache gets to go on living in the city rather than being the slave of some Greek. And I get to keep my life. But he throws this idea out, too. But why am I talking to myself like this? I can't go out there unarmed. Achilles will cut me down in cold blood if I take off my armor and go out to meet him naked like a woman. This is no time for talking, the way a boy and a girl whisper to each other from oak tree or rock. A boy and a girl with all their sweet talk. Better to lock up in mortal combat as soon as possible and see to whom God on Olympus grants the victory. Hector knows it's not about Helen anymore. Hell, it's not about the city of Troy. Achilles isn't chasing after Hector because Achilles wants swag from Troy's citadel. We've seen Achilles turn down swag and riches so many times at this point, and he is, if anything, even more indifferent to them now than he has been at any other point during this epic. No, Achilles is here for blood. Hector's blood. Achilles will not rest until Hector lies dead. He said so himself to Thetis several books ago. And Hector knows why. Hector killed Patroclus. He can't take that back. He can't undo that. It's over for him. So Achilles closes in, and Hector runs away. Like, literally runs away around the walls of the city, and they end up doing three laps around the city walls. And it makes sense that even Hector's retreat, his sort of panic and flight, is itself heroic. Somehow he manages to run around this city three times. Miles and miles and miles this mad dash turns out to be. 
And we get some pretty good description of the geography as well. Like we passed the springs where the women would used to wash clothes before, you know, the whole war prevented that from happening. And, you know, we get like some description here. We get another Zeus reevaluates his decision moment here. He's like, I actually really like Hector. I don't want Achilles to kill him. And Athena's like, nope, can't do that. And Hector's like, you're right. Fate has it in for him. It's too late for me to intervene here. And we even get the passage when after the third lap around the city, Zeus stretched out his golden scales, line 236, and placed on them two agonizing deaths, one for Achilles and one for Hector, when he held the beam Hector's doom sank down toward Hades and Phoebus Apollo left him. Hector is abandoned by the god who supports him at this point in time. And instead, we get a deception. Athena shows up as Hector's running around the city as disguised as Hector's spear-bearer and chariot driver, Diphorbus. And Hector's like, well, if I've got Diphorbus, then that means that I've got multiple spears because he's bringing his spear to this party, which means I've actually got a fighting chance against Achilles, who is alone and has only the one spear. So Hector faces off against Achilles, and we get the fight. Achilles throws one spear, and it misses Hector. And Hector's like, haha, you wasted your spear. I still have mine, and he throws it at Achilles, and Achilles just knocks the spear away because his shield is super awesome. And Hector's like, Diphorbus, give me another spear. Diphorbus? Diphorbus? Oh, shit. And meanwhile, Athena magically gives Achilles his spear back because Diphorbus wasn't Hector's ally. Diphorbus was Athena in disguise, and he was she was actually... Achilles is ally. At this point, Hector knows he's screwed. Athena tricked me, he says, line 328. Death is closing in, and there's no escape. Zeus and Apollo must have chosen this long ago, even though they used to be on my side. Well, this is fate. But I will not perish without doing some great deed that future generations will remember. And he draws his sword and charges Achilles. Hopelessly. Because Achilles has a spear. Hector just has his sword at this point. Achilles could probably wreck Hector if it did come down to swords, but it's just not even a competition in this situation. So Hector charges, proving his courage once and for all, accepting his fate and his death, and Achilles runs him right through with that spear, right through the neck. Notice right where the armor stops so he doesn't actually hurt his own armor, and he cuts him right through the neck but did not slit the windpipe, so we get a couple of good death monologues here. And the death monologues are probably what you would expect. Achilles insults Hector as he dies, again, because that's kind of Achilles' M.O. in super rage Achilles mode. Hector begs him, request, or, please return my body to my family. Accept the ransom. Don't defile the body. Give it back to my family so they can weep properly, so they can you know, be burned in honor by the Trojans and their wives. And Achilles responds, don't whine to me about my parents, you dog. I wish my stomach would let me cut off your flesh in strips and eat it raw for what you've done to me. There is no one and no way to bring the dogs off your head. Not even if they bring ten or twenty ransoms. Pile them up here and promise more. Not even if Dardanian Priam weighs your body out in gold. Not even then will your mother ever get to mourn you laid out on a beer. No, dogs and birds will eat every last scrap. Notice Achilles responds with characteristic cruelty here. I would eat your body if I could stand it. 
if my stomach wouldn't vomit it up because you're so filthy and disgusting. Like, he goes to cannibalism. Like, Achilles doesn't even stop it, you know, you know, ha-ha, the dogs and birds will eat you. No, I would eat you myself if I could handle such a disgusting body in my mouth. Like, cannibalism isn't even the worst part of it. He's like, you're too gross for me to cannibalize. And Hector responds, so this is Achilles. There was no way to persuade you. Your heart is a lump of iron. But the gods will not forget this. And I will have my vengeance on that day when Paris and Apollo destroy you with the long shadow of Troy's western gate. We're shown the future here. Again, as we saw with Aeneas and Achilles facing off, we're presaging later events. Hector literally identifies that it's going to be Paris and Apollo working together who take out Achilles. That this is bound to happen. But notice the justice of it, too. Your heart is a lump of iron, Hector says. And we've heard this before. Patroclus said that, you know, you were a, your heart is a cold scab, that your parents were the sea and the craggy rocks. Many have identified that Achilles is apparently heartless, totally unsympathetic, utterly cruel. The one person he seems to care about is Patroclus, and even his caring about Patroclus seems excessive. If he's willing to sacrifice 12 young men to Patroclus's altar, and Hector dies, and Achilles says, Die and be done with it. As for my fate, I'll accept it whenever Zeus sends it. He has, in fact, accepted his fate, which is a good thing, I guess. And then he invites all of his friends to come over and stab the body with spears for a while. And then he, like, ties, he, like, pierces Hector's heels with a rod and ties it to the back of his chariot and then proceeds to drive around, dragging Hector's dead body behind his chariot. And he will keep it that way for the following two chapters. Like, heck, he's just going to make a wonderful show of driving around the city, dragging Hector's body in the dirt, letting Hecuba, letting Andromache watch and weep, mad with grief. And we see them going mad with grief. Priam... Hecuba, Andromache, they all have separate speeches where they are watching this happen and they're literally losing their mind. The old man is frantic to run through the gates, we're told, at 457. He makes this desperate appeal. Let me go alone to the Greek ships. I don't care if you're worried. I want to see if that monster will respect my age, pity me for the sake of my own father. We get Hecuba. My son, I am desolate. How can I live with suffering like this? With you dead, you were the only comfort I had day and night. Andromache, like, tears her own hair out, weeps. Hector, you and I have both come to the grief we were born for. You and Priam's Troy and I and Thebes in the house of Aetion. She goes on to talk about their son together. Now you are going to Hades' dark world, underground, leaving me in sorrow, a widow in the halls with an infant, the son you and I bore but cannot bless. You can't help him now you are dead, Hector, and he can never help you. Even if he lives through this unbearable war, there's nothing left for him in life but pain and deprivation, all his property lost to others. An orphan has no friends. He hangs his head, his cheeks are wet with tears, he has to beg from his dead father's friends, tugging on one man's cloak, another's tunic, and if they pity him, he gets to sip from someone's cup, just enough to moisten his lips, but not enough to quench his thirst. Or a child with both parents still alive will push him away from a feast, taunting him, Go away, your father doesn't eat with us. 
and the boy will go to his widowed mother in tears. Astyanax, who used to sit in his father's lap and eat nothing but mutton and marrow, when he got sleepy and tired of playing, he would take a nap in a soft bed nestled in his nurse's arms, his dreaming head filled with blossoming joy. But now he'll suffer. Now he's lost his father. The Trojans called him Astyanax because you alone were Troy's defender. You alone protected their walls and gates. Now you lie by the curved prows of the ships far from your parents. The dogs will glut on your naked body, and shiny maggots will eat what's left. Your clothes are stored away. Beautiful fine clothes made by a woman's hands. I'll burn them all now in a blazing fire. They're no use to you. They'll never lie on the pyre of them. Burning them will be your glory before Trojan men and women. Notice the devastation here. Andromache told us back in Book 6, Hector was everything to her. She had no father, she had no mother, she had no brothers. They were all killed by Achilles. Hector was all, and Achilles has now taken Hector from her as well. Astyanax is doomed. Even if he somehow survives the Trojan War, he will grow up an orphan, hated and despised and derided by his friends and by other people. They're all screwed. As much as Hector cared so much for what his wife, for what his family, for what his fellows thought about him, what did it matter in the end if that's what caused him to face off against Achilles and die this way? Only to be dragged around, degraded by the Greeks. Hector is dead, and Troy is lost. That's the big message here. We're given multiple indications of this throughout these speeches. If Aeneas and Achilles is our sort of glimpse into the future where Aeneas escapes and founds his own legacy. This is our glimpse into the future of the city of Troy. It will fall now. It is doomed to fall now. Achilles killing Hector isn't the final act in this story, but it is certainly the one that secures that act. It is inevitable now. Fate is just tightening its grip around the city of Troy. Homer is telling us the story of its fall, even if it doesn't actually fall in these particular pages. The death of Hector is the death of all Troy. And the tragedy of Hector's death is the tragedy of the fall of Troy as well. Next time we're going to finish the Iliad. We'll see the games that Achilles poses in Patroclus's honor, including all of the other presaging events that hint at other things to come. And then we will finally close this sucker out with a perhaps surprising and unusual finale. I look forward to talking about it with you soon.